0: So, over the next four weeks, we'll be going through this series uh, called BC, uh, How Was Life Before Christmas, and, and we're asking the question, what if Christmas didn't exist? Would your life be any different? And we'll go through each week, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, through the passage that Molly read. But each week, so that gives us the context for the entire series, so we'll read that passage every week, but then each week we're going to preach from a different passage in Isaiah that teases out each of those names of, of, the, of the Messiah. So today we're talking about Wonderful Counselor, and I'll read the passage that I'll be preaching through a little later in, in the sermon, uh, but just so you know, that passage that Molly read gives us this greater context for how we're supposed to understand this time of year, how we're supposed to understand Advent, and it's going to push us forward, and then, and then we'll, we'll dive into the text of Isaiah for each specific sermon So, this question, how was life before Christmas, or or would your life be any different if Christmas wasn't in it? I don't know what this season is like for you. Maybe this season is just uh, marketing. Maybe it's just about presents. Maybe it is about Jesus. Maybe it's about family. Maybe it's about... um, yeah, food, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, just busyness uh, for a lot of you guys this season is about. Um, but my girls, they've been talking about Christmas since February of this year <laughs> because they love Jesus so much. Uh, no, they love presents, um, but it's a combo. It's a combo both. Um, we actually don't get them a whole lot of gifts, so, uh, but they just love the season. And some of you guys are like that. Some of you guys have been anticipating the season all year. Uh, I mean, and it, it's built, right? I mean, look, we decorated in here, stores decorated weeks ago, uh, Starbucks, that's when you know Christmas is here, when Starbucks has their Christmas blend out, they got their cups out, uh, Christmas music is in the air, you know, you're planning trips to see family, all that's coming to fruition soon. Uh, when I was growing up, there are a couple years in there where I would wake up on Christmas Eve night with an intense migraine, and I'd have to throw up in order for <laughs> for me to feel better. I'm like throwing up the Christmas spirit. I'm like, ah, Christmas. Uh, but I would get so worked up over Christmas, just anxious about it, looking forward to it, in anticipation of it, that it would affect me physiologically, and it would it would debilitate me. I don't know if you've ever had a migraine, but it's like it's just super debilitating. Um, and it wouldn't go until I threw up, took some medicine, went back to sleep. Um, and then everything was great Christmas morning. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. And that happened for a couple of years growing up. Now, some of you guys, Christmas has been like my girls. You can't wait for it to get here. You can't, you, you've been anticipating it all year. The excitement is just building. But for some of you guys, you're more like me in the migraines. And it's because Christmas reminds you of, the end, of the, the end of the year, and you look at your life, 2016, and you say, gosh, I didn't accomplish any of the goals that I set out to accomplish. You say, ah, none of my relationships worked out very well. I'm still in the same job. I'm still in school. Like, school is never-ending for me. I have these broken relationships. My marriage is, is a failure, my faith, it reminds me of, of faith, but I don't even know what I believe. I don't know where I am in my faith. And the season isn't one of joy for you. It's actually one of anxiety, of, antici- of, of uh, depression, of um, migraines. And this passage that, that we'll go into this morning, and the one that, well, first off, the one that Molly read, Isaiah is saying, I know it's hard right now, but guess what? There's a wonderful counselor. There's someone whose wisdom is going to silence your doubts and your fears. There's a mighty God, someone when the situation, your situation seems impossible, is there with you to push you forward. There's an everlasting father. This is the Savior. This is the Messiah who he's going to represent everything that God is in his nature, he's the exact imprint of the nature of God, Hebrews says. In Colossians, it says he's the image of the invisible God. The fullness of, of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. This is the everlasting father, and he's the prince of peace. He's going to bring peace and justice to your situation. And Isaiah is promising that to a people who are in disarray, who are in depression and anxiety, and, and whose situation does not look good. And this morning, as we narrow down on Wonderful Counselor, I want you to know this, that whatever your situation is, uh, because you guys are going through stuff, and whatever your situation is, I want you to remember this statement. If you don't remember anything else, remember this statement uh, throughout the sermon, that the word, and when I say the word there, I mean Jesus, the Messiah, but also the scriptures. Uh, it's It's a double meaning there. The word is wisdom that will wash your filth, and I use that word intentionally. It will wash your filth is what Isaiah uses. It will wilt your fears, um, and it will walk you forward, okay? If you can remember that statement, the word is wisdom that will wash your filth, wilt your fears, and walk you forward. So let's go in Isaiah here. <clears throat> Chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Isaiah, the, Isaiah is a 66-chapter book. It's often called the fifth gospel. Because uh, it has so many prophecies of the Messiah. And we can look at Isaiah and we can say, oh wow, Jesus fulfills that, Jesus fulfills that, Jesus fulfills that. And go all throughout the book of Isaiah and see that Jesus fulfills every single one of these prophecies. Chapters 1 and 2 of Isaiah is like a microcosm of the entire book. So if you can understand chapters 1 through 2, you're going to understand all 66 chapters. You're going to understand the rest of Isaiah. Isaiah. So what's happening in one and two is there's there's uh, the people of Israel. So they're the people of God. So this book is a, Isaiah. When he's talking, he's he's addressing the people of God here. And when I say the people of God, I'm meaning those who have covenanted with God to say, "You will be our God; we will be we will be your people." That refrain is repeated throughout the whole Old Testament: "We'll be your God; you'll be our people." Um, that's That's what makes them the people of of God. And they've gone through their entire history, and uh, they've devoted themselves to God. God has said, you're going to be a light to the nations, so I'm going to use this people. And he says to Israel, he says, there's nothing special about you. He says, there's nothing great about you. You're you're actually the fewest and the weakest of all peoples. Amos says, that's that's why you're chosen. Not because you're the best. Not because there's anything special. uh, But... You're the fewest, and it's in your weakness that my power and my strength and my glory is going to be made known. So God does this. The people the people follow God, but then what happens is they don't follow God. They disobey. They follow God, they disobey, and they eventually persist in their disobedience over and over and over and over and over again. They disobey. And that's where we are in the book of Isaiah, and and now... We have here a book that is a lot of judgment, uh, but God's judgment isn't like our judgment. God's judgment is always tied with God's love, okay? And and so this is really a book about God's love and His love for the people of God here. And and He says in the first chapter, it's it's very foreboding. Foreboding. I mean, it's very. <laughs> uh, it it's 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 not. Uh, it's, it's not very light. It seems very dark. Uh, but he goes through it and he says, the city lies desolate in the first chapter. But then he says, out of, a, out of that, a remnant will arise. So you see the judgment and the love pair together. He's like, yeah, it's desolate, but guess what? I preserved a remnant, and out of that remnant are my people. And then it goes into the city, and it says, he says here in chapter 2 that the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now she's full of murderers. And then later on he says, but that city will once again be called the city of righteousness. So you see again God's love. He's he's trying to restore the people. He's not just, God isn't punishing them, okay? These are the consequences of their own action. God isn't punishing them. These are consequences. And in God's love, he's trying to restore them. Okay? This is the prophets. This is where you need to understand the prophets. A lot of us hear the prophets and we're like, oh, that sounds really bad. But the harsh judgment, the exile that's, that's approaching is all out of love. Okay? We can't know we can't know the wrath of God without the love of God. Sometimes we think that on, we have a coin. On one side is the wrath of God. On the other side is the love of God. That's not a right understanding of God's wrath and God's love. It's actually all the same coin. Okay, There aren't sides to it. God's wrath and God's love uh, operate together. Okay, um, Let me give you an example. So A couple years ago, Reagan, my five-year-old who was then probably around three, was walking to the park with my wife, Missy, and and Missy, Reagan, Emerson are walking to the park, and we normally walk in the park, and then you have to cross, cross the street to go to the park. And Missy goes around the corner, they're walking. Reagan, the, the park is like Disneyland to Reagan. Like, every time she sees the park, she's like, I mean, I don't even know why we're going to take her to Disney World. That's, that's like her Disney World uh, is the park. So she gets so excited that she just runs across the street and a car is coming, has a slam on its brakes, and almost hits Reagan. And Missy runs out in the street, of course, and uh, I don't know, were you weeping? You're probably like a match. The lady gets out of the car and Missy asks the lady if she's okay. And the lady's like, what are you talking about? Are you okay? Um, And our first reaction to Reagan running out in the street was actually anger at her running out in the street. And why was that? It's because we love her. It was because our our love for her and, and our anger that she would do something like that and not listen to us is, is commensurate with our love for her. And like our anger didn't look like, oh, Reagan, uh, we weren't like shaking. We were just like, why would you do that? Because we loved her so much. And if that would have happened, uh just would have been horrible, right? Um, so think about God. The people committed to God. And he committed to the people. And now they've been sinning over and over and over again. And this is a picture of God's love and his wrath at the same time. Okay. God's... Let's put this, let me put this statement up here. The, inten- the intensity of God's love allows for the intensity of his wrath, but it creates the opportunity for the immensity of his grace and his mercy. You guys following that? There comes a point where there's there's a last resort. And and God is God is here. He's loved, he's loved, he's loved. And some of you guys are here in your, in your walk of faith. You've, you've tried to follow, you, you've been like, like the people of God, like Israel, and, and maybe you've gone up and down, side to side, and and um, you've just gone deeper and deeper into your sin, into your destruction, into disobedience. And this is where the people of Israel are. And this may be where you are. And God says at this point, sometimes, the prophet, like the prophet Hosea says, sometimes God needs to wound in order to heal. The prophet Jeremiah says, sometimes God needs to tear down in order to build up. Paul says in Romans that sometimes God offers us up to our own desires. In 1 Corinthians 5, this is like the very last resort he says, something that's very scary, he says, hand that person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved. There comes a point where, where God, he can't love anymore, and he can't chase these people anymore. He can't chase you anymore. And there comes a point where he says, Maybe the last thing to do is let you experience this wrath so that you see through the the immensity of my love, the the intensity of my love, the intensity of my wrath, and this immensity of mercy and grace that comes. And sometimes God needs to pull back that mercy and grace in order for you to experience that. And that's where the people of Israel are right now. They're on the brink of exile. Exile. They're on the brink of getting vomited, as the scriptures say, vomited out of the land, cast out of it. And God's told them this will happen. He said, if you don't, if, if you don't stay my people, if you're not a light to the nations like, like you're supposed to be, because they're supposed to be showing the world the salvation of God, that the Messiah is coming to rescue all of us. He says, if you don't do that, you don't deserve the promised land, and you're going to be exiled. And that's where this passage that I'm about to read to you, is nestled in between this judgment. And Isaiah says, in the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this exile, there's actually hope. So follow along with me on the screen. This is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest Of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, the instruction, the teaching, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and he shall beat their swords into plowshares. ...and their spears and a pruning hoax. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So in this passage here, uh, we're just going to walk through it. Um, and I want to show you here the beauty of the wisdom of God here. Remember, we're talking about wonderful counselor this morning, and when Isaiah uses this term... It's a direct allusion to the Davidic dynasty that God foretold in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is one of the covenants in the scriptures where, where it's, a, it's a major prophecy where God says David to King David that there's going to be someone who's going to sit on the throne of God forever. And this is going to be the Messiah. And when he says, wonderful of counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, this is a direct allusion to uh, that uh, prophecy and so this person is a wonderful counselor when it says wonderful in our in our culture we've kind of that word is kind of it's it's lost some of its meaning and the scriptures where, where it's used it's not just like oh that's wonderful it's no he is he is uh we're to be in awe and wonder of this person and this person is going to be highly unique This person is going to be one of a kind. This person is going to be, there's not going to be anything else or anybody else like this person that we've ever seen or that we will ever, ever see again. That's what he's saying when he says wonderful. All that is in that one word. And then counselor is just saying someone who, uh, what do you typically think of a counselor? Someone who uh, mediates, walks alongside, gives advice, points you in the right direction. And so this person is going to do that like nobody else has ever done it. We've been waiting for this person all of history. And and so keep that in mind as we go through this. So verse 2 starts off, it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. And it gives us a direct, um, what's called an eschatological outlook, uh, an outlook towards the last days, end times. And so immediately, I, what Isaiah is doing is he's taking the people, and, and they're in the midst of this, really desolate, desperate situation. In fact, it's actually God who's in the desperate situation here. Um, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but they're in this desperate situation and he's like, hey, zoom out from here. Like, let's, let's zoom out a little bit. I want to give you an eternal perspective here because you guys think you have it bad. He's like, I know, it, it seems really bad right now, but let me give you something. He says, in the latter days it's going to look like this. And this reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is one of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures. It talks about an eternal perspective, this passage does. And uh, one day I'll maybe write a book on this because this passage has defined, defined my life. Um, and uh, what Paul is trying to give the Corinthians here is this zoom out kind of thing that Isaiah is doing. And he says this to people who are being persecuted for living out their faith. Uh, and you can follow along on the screen. We have it. He says, but we have this treasure, talking about the gospel, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning that, that these, uh, he's talking about our bodies, meaning that they're, they're fragile. Uh, it's in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Does that remind you of, of the people of God, why God chose Israel? And why God chooses to use the church, it's not because we're special. It's because we're not special. And he says it's to show the surpassing power belongs to God. Verse 8, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we... Who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose hearts. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, this persecution, whatever you're going through right now, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us, for you, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen with our eyes, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're fleeting, they're ephemeral. But the things that are unseen are eternal, everlasting, forever. And this is what Isaiah is trying to, trying to give to the people right now. That, yeah, it looks really tough right now, but guess what? There's a bigger picture here. So he's zooming out for them and he says, The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all mountains. And it will be lifted up and the nations shall flow to it like a stream, like a river. The nations will be flowing up the mountain. Uh, Remember, this is the highest of all mountains. Think think about this for a second. Uh, You guys know the highest mountain in the world? Mount Everest. Um, it's about, it's, it's just under 30,000 feet, I think it's 29,000 29, um, feet, and which is just below uh, the cruising altitude of a commercial airliner. Those typically travel at around 35,000, 32, 35, sometimes a little higher. But think about that, next time you see a plane in the sky, that's how big Mount Everest is. That's how far above sea level it is. And isn't that crazy that... Um that a mountain is that is that tall, well, he says here that this is going to be the highest mountain ever, okay, This is the highest of all mountains, and going up a mountain like Mount Everest, uh, when Hillary and Norgate did it back in whenever they did it, i don 't know, was it like nineteen hundred sometime. Um, They didn't need oxygen and all that, but they needed a, uh, Norgay was a Sherpa, they needed a whole bunch of gear, they needed layers, I'm sure, and they barely made it. Nowadays, you have oxygen, you got your North Face or your Canada Goose or all that stuff, um, your nice tents and stuff. Uh, But still with that, there aren't very very many people in the world who've actually done it. But he says here, this mountain, even though it's the highest, the nations are flowing to it like a stream. And he says here in verse 3 and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that may, we may walk in his paths. This is the wisdom of God. This is the word. This is actually the church, a picture of the church in the Old Testament. He says, For out of, this is the bride of Christ, for out of Zion, which is Jerusalem, shall go the law, God's instruction, God's teachings. When you hear law, don't think, uh, uh Think God's instruction and in his teaching, how he's trying to restore his people. So out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I don't have time to talk about the word of the Lord, um, but the word of the Lord is this theme you can trace throughout all the scriptures beginning in Genesis 1 with creation. And then you'll see it all the way at the, at the end. And this is God's personal uh, uh, name here that's, that's being used. That this is the word of Yahweh. Uh, so, this is very relational. This is very personal for the, for the nations. Guys, this isn't about, about denominations anymore. It's not about uh, traditions. It's not about theological preferences. None of that is here anymore. All of this is the church, the bride of Christ, going up to the highest of all mountains because something's drawing them there. It's God's presence. And it's God's word. And those things are going forth from here. And the people finally realize they don't need anything else. They finally realize, the nations do, that all they need is the word of God and the presence of God. Do you know this to be true in your life? That that is all you need? That the presence of God and the word of God should be the lens through which you do everything, should define everything for you. And that's, that's all you need. That's all the wisdom you need. And now don't, don't mishear me. Um, I'm not just saying read your Bible more. Uh, although, uh, read your Bible more. <laughs> so I'm saying it. Uh, but uh, God's wisdom isn't, God's wisdom is revealed here. This is the most reliable form of God's wisdom This isn't the entirety of God's wisdom, okay? But this is going to be how you interpret God's wisdom in the world. Our problem is we're so wrapped up in the wisdom of this world that we can't discern what God's wisdom is and and what the wisdom of this world is. Because we've built our life around the wisdom of this world. We make decisions based on the wisdom of this world. We don't make decisions through this Bible here, the most reliable source of God's word right right here. We make decisions based on other things, on your flesh, on your sin, on your preferences, on what other people say to you, on culture, on pop culture, on news, media, what, whatever. Um, and you're building your life around something that is, what, what Paul was saying is ephemeral, is, is, is fading, is transient, is something that's seen, instead of something that is eternal and everlasting. And so where where I'm saying, where I'm saying, you know, maybe I'm not saying read your Bible more, I'm saying, but I am saying read this more. This is what's going to transform you. Presence with in God's presence with the word is going to transform you. And the things that you're going through right now, if you actually believe, I mean, do you guys believe this is, these are the words of life that breathe life into you? And if you believe that, why isn't it the very first thing you dwell on, meditate on, read in the morning, and the very last thing you do before you go to, to bed at night? And why isn't it something that's, that Paul's saying uh, meditate, or David's saying meditate on this day, and I Paul's saying pray without ceasing, make these thoughts your thoughts. Like if you want life breathed into you, you don't have to go any further than the presence of God And the word of God. Except we're content with the wisdom of this world. We're content with pursuing those things. And that's where Israel is right now. They're content with just their religiosity. Uh, Isaiah once says they're content with just offering up sacrifices. And God says, I never wanted that. I wanted your hearts. They're content with pursuing other idols. Uh, Little things, little little gods, success, sex, family, whatever, you want, know, money, whatever you want to put in that blank. And God says, you're never going to find satisfaction in that. And he's saying, at the end of time, what people are going to realize is they're going to just flow up this mountain. And it's like this rushing stream of God's presence and God's words that's drawing all the nations up the mountain. Your problem today is, it may be, You're trying to scale that mountain without stepping into the river. And you can't scale the mountain without stepping into the river of God's word and his presence. And so Isaiah here is drawing them back to this truth. He's drawing them back to this. He says, out of Zion it will go forth. The word of the Lord, he wants a relationship with you. He's going to draw you to him. In verse 4 he says, he's going to judge between the nations. He's going to, and when it says judge there, sometimes we take that a little harshly. Um, all it's meaning is he's going to administer justice. He's going to administer justice and peace between the nations. And he'll decide disputes for many peoples. And he's going to beat their swords into plowshares. He's going to beat their spears into pruning hooks. Plowshare, uh, I was asked this morning what a plowshare was. I actually had to look it up this week. I was like, what is that? Um, is that like a piece of the plow? Uh, it's, it's like the blade of the plow. And basically what he's saying is he's going to take your instruments of death and he's going to make it instruments that bring life. He's going to take your swords and they, they're, they're purveyors of death and he, he's going to make your instruments to, to breathe and bring life into, into the people. It says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they, they learn war anymore. And then he gives this really beautiful exhortation where he's actually pleading with the people. He says, O house of Jacob, which is uh, um, a a phrase in reference to the people of God, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And it's this really sweet pleading that he's doing with them. He's like, let's just let us walk in the light of the Lord. Why do we keep on choosing darkness? Let us walk in the light. There's this really interesting parallel in the book of Micah in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, And minor prophets doesn't mean he's a a lesser prophet or he wasn't as important as Isaiah. It just means he has a shorter book. Um, And his book is seven pages long. And so Micah, the first three verses of each of these prophecies is exactly the same. Micah adds two things on the end. And, And two things he adds are these. He says, one, if you do this, there'll be tremendous blessing. If you realize that the word of God, the presence of God is all you need. There's going to be tremendous blessing. He says He says here, he, he uses the imagery of a vine. And you'll be sitting under a fig tree, he says, and a vine. And then he says, and no one shall make them afraid. And this is where, going back to that statement, that God's wisdom, that, that the word is this wisdom that wilts your fears uh, comes from. That, that you will no longer be afraid. And he says, this is so awesome when, you, when you're when you reading this. He says, so he says, you'll be sitting under a vine, a fig tree. You'll no longer be afraid. And it's because of this. The mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And that's it. Like that's, he doesn't have to say anything else. He just says, God has spoken and so it will be. And you can trust that. And then he adds one more thing. says, he adds that the people of God are actually going to triumph. So here Isaiah leaves it, and he's Isaiah's kind of like, hey guys, please let's walk in the light of the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you. I'm, I'm begging you. This is going to be, this is our hope. This is our security. This is what's best for us. Micah says it's going to happen, and the people of God will return, and it will be this way forever and ever and ever. And we have here, the people of Israel, the people of God, the house of Jacob, poised between the nations. They can either continue in, in destruction in disobedience and death, or they can go and uh, choose life and light and love. And Isaiah says, the choice is yours. And then after this passage of hope, he goes into saying, the, he goes into pronouncing the judgment even more. And church... We are at this point. We're poised between the nations. We're poised to either uh, choose disobedience, death, and destruction, or life, light, and hope. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to get extremely political on you guys. I'm not gonna get extremely political, but I believe that we're at this time. If you look at if you look at uh, what's happened with the U.S. election. Um, that we've seen a rise in the church. We've seen the church. We've seen because what's what's happening here is is Isaiah says there's those who say they're the people of God and there's those who are actually the true people of God. And those are the ones who are going to be the remnant. And what we see happening in our in the west today is there's there's a distinction now that's happening between those who are true followers of Jesus, who are the true house of, of Jacob, who are the true covenant people of God, and those who are just identifying nominally or culturally with God. And we see this divide happening in, in uh, the, the Christian tradition right now, in the West in particular, but actually all over the world. If you talk with the Anglican uh, tradition, same thing is happening. Where this divide is happening and you're seeing this rise and this rebirth of the church. And now it's not easy. It's actually really hard. We're actually in a very desperate situation. But what you see here is a revival and a reawakening happening in the church. Where the true people of God say, this is what we should represent. And we're seeing this, this kind of filter out. And we're living in it right now. And these people here are in the middle of that divide. And... I don't want to ruin the end of the story for you, but what ends up happening is a remnant ends up returning. And what en- and, and the people who aren't fully committed, they end up staying in exile. And the ones who come back, they, they come back to rebuild uh, and to live as the remnant. And so as, as the church, as we live in a time very much like this, we have a choice to make. Like I said, death, disobedience, destruction, life, light, love. And this is never going to happen unless we have individuals in the church who are collectively committed to the wisdom of God. And that's a choice that each of you has to make individually. Us, Trinity Life Church, we choose to stand on the promises in here. So if you're a part of our of, of this church, uh, know that we're centering everything around the presence of God and the word of God the kingdom of God. And you have to make that decision in in your own life, whether you're going to choose one or the other. And Isaiah is calling the people to that here. He's saying, this is the counsel of God. This is the wonderful counseling that he's giving them right now. And this is why he says a few chapters later that the Messiah is going to make all things new. And he's going to restore all these things. There's... There's a few significant hills and mountains in the scriptures. There's Mount Moriah, and this is where Abraham goes up to sacrifice Isaac. There is Mount Sinai. And this is where Moses goes up and he receives the, the law, the Ten Commandments, God's instruction to give to the people. There's um, the Temple Mount. This is where Solomon builds the first temple there's psalm 24 where david writes who shall ascend god's holy hill and he says he who has clean hands and a pure heart the lord of hosts the king of glory he's the one who's going to do it there's uh isaiah chapter 2 the highest of all mountains where we're just being streamed in by god's instruction by by god's law by god's teaching there's two other ones um But let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 because these two fulfill a prophecy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, I should say, um, this is Moses giving the law to the people. And he says, Moses knows he's not entering the promised land. He's not going to go and he's going to die before he goes in. And he says to the people, don't worry, a prophet like me is going to arise from among you guys. And he's going to lead you. Well, then the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, there's an insert. So Moses writes the book, and then the very last paragraph, which is a few verses, was put in post-exile. So thousands of years later. And it's put in, it says, there has not arisen a prophet like Moses yet. Yet. And it leaves us waiting. And when Jesus comes, he preaches the kingdom, he preaches repentance after he gets baptized, after he goes through the wilderness, and he's tempted for 40 days, which is a parallel to the 40 years of Israel going through the wilderness. Jesus does this, he goes up on a mountain, and he gives a new law. It's not a new law. He, he redefines it. He says, you've heard that it was said this. And he's not redefining the Old Testament. He's redefining how the people misinterpreted it. And he says, I give you a new law. Or he says, you, I, you've heard that it was said. I'm telling you that it's supposed to mean this. And he goes to the heart of the law. He goes directly to the heart. And Jesus becomes the new Moses. Hebrews calls him the greater Moses and then there's one more mountain that Jesus ascends and this is Calvary this is Golgotha this is the place of his crucifixion which many people believe is the same as Mount Moriah where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac and Jesus is sacrificed there by his father on this mountain for us so that we could have this choice between death and destruction and love and life and light away from darkness into light and that's the wisdom of God how beautiful is that, that if you read through the scriptures it's not about punishment. It's about God pursuing us and loving us and wanting us as his own because he knows we're living in darkness and he says, you weren't made for that. You're made to be in the light and we're so comfortable with the darkness that we don't want to let go of the ways of this world and the light hurts our eyes at first but once you've adjusted to it, it's, it's a whole new way to see things. The veil is removed, 2 Corinthians says. He takes our heart of, Ezekiel says, he takes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart that can feel, a heart of flesh. And the word of God is this mirror that we look into, Paul says, that reveals all those things to us. So when I say that the word the wisdom of God is going to wash away our filth, it's not because it condemns us. It's because it cleanses us. When I say that the word of God, the wisdom of God is and, and Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to wilt our fears, it's not because he binds us or fetters us. It's because he frees us. And when I say that the word of God, Jesus, the wisdom of God, is going to help us walk forward and move forward. It's not because it restrains us, but he releases us into our identity and destiny in him in order to influence this city and this world for the glory of God. So just as Moses says in Deuteronomy, I set before you life and death. That's your choice today. I set before you Jesus, light, love, or death and destruction and disobedience. And so in this Advent season, whatever the season typically is for you, pray that Jesus redefines it for you this, this season, that it's no longer a season of anxiety or depression or just meaningless happiness, but it's something that's rooted in Jesus in the wonderful counselor who is pure wisdom from God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its beauty, for its grandeur, for, for giving us the ability to understand it. Thank you for the measure of faith that you've given us to trust in you. Thank you for your willingness, Jesus, to offer yourself up for us. Thank you that you are the wonderful counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And I pray this morning for anyone who is in here who doesn't know that, who has not been transformed by that, that today would be the day that they choose you and are transformed by the power of your gospel. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.